0: As long as algebra and geometry has been separated their progress have been slow and their uses limited but when these two sciences have been united they have lent each mutual forces and have merged together towards perfection. Den interplanetära podden Utforskning av rymden till fördel för hela mänskligheten. Dina värderingar i en och nu Norge med Christer och Kris <im pseudonym> <sharp sting> <im skipping> oh yeah baby, <imities> oh yeah baby, La Lagrange.
1: Definitely a favourite, isn't he? Oh yeah. Old Joseph Le Lagrange. <laughs> what a guy. He was born on this day in 1736. A long time ago, isn't it that? Yes, very long time ago. 1736. Yeah. He's an Italian French
0: mathematician and astronomer. Do you think, uh, do you th- did you hear any of the Italian I put into that then?
1: I did spot a French-Italian mix, which was very clever, and that you'd put it in the in the kind of French dialect you'd expect from the 18th century. Oh, very yeah, clever yeah,
0: indeed. absolutely. I on my research, and and to give it that Italian uh, edge to it, I did it while sitting in my Maserati.
1: Now, I, I was trying to get my head round, because that seems a long time ago, considering what he achieved, and... I was trying to get my head around about who was around at the time. And the one that I was really surprised was that Lagrange was born 23 years before Robbie Burns.
0: Uh, happy Burns Day, everyone, or Burns Night. He's born on the same day as well. Yeah.
1: Robbie Burns is 23 years after Lagrange. Yeah. And, and Lagrange is almost exactly 100 years after Newton. Not exactly, but, you know pretty much just under 100 years after Newton. Give or take. And he's living, and he's living, of course, in revolutionary France where everyone's having their heads cut off all over
0: the place. He's also um, 245 years before Alicia Keys.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs)
0: Absolutely,
1: who, uh, if you listen to my other podcast, you'll have discovered doesn't use auto-tune. Oh, doesn't she? She's got a wonderful voice. Mentioned Alicia Keys on two podcasts in the same week, which is pretty cool. Amazing! The pedigree of Lagrange. He was a student of Euler, one of the greatest mathematicians of all time. Of course. And a student of Jean-Baptiste Laurent d'Alembert, who is also an amazing mathematician. But Lagrange was a teacher to my favourite mathematician of all time, Fourier.
0: Fourier. He's one of my favourites too. Oh.
1: Well, without Fourier analysis, we wouldn't be able to do this podcast because there'd be no way of getting our digital audio onto the internet. Correct. But what did Lagrange do? What didn't he do? He didn't sleep much. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't, actually. No, he didn't. He used to um, keep himself awake with tea and coffee. Good choice. Kept himself awake to work throughout the night. And his vision at the age of 20, if only students these days at the age of 20 had a vision like this. And this is what he says. I will deduce the complete mechanics of solid and fluid bodies using the principle of least action. And uh, he did uh, a single uniting principle, turned out to be virtual work rather than least action.
0: Oh, everybody knows that these days, don't they? Yeah, that's
1: what our lives have become, isn't it?
0: Virtual work.
1: <laughs> but he was doing that in 1763, uh, discussing the libration of the moon. It's one of the most important theoretical mechanics uh, since Newton.
0: Lagrangian mechanics.
1: Lagrangian mechanics. Uh, uh, he got involved in the metric system as well. He got involved in longitude.
0: It won't catch up. In other on. words,
1: trying to <laughs> trying to navigate without uh, uh, making your ship run aground in Cornwall, where you get beaten up by pirates. Oof. He developed calculus into some of the things that uh, mathematicians use today. So the the name Lagrange. Is absolutely everywhere. But of course, a firm favorite of the podcast is the fact that he studied the three body problem and discovered these Lagrangian points, which is the libration points where the gravitational effects of two masses equal the centripetal force necessary for a smaller mass to move with them. Wow. Really famous example of that, which ties in with a mission that's going this year, the Lucy mission, is that Jupiter has Trojans, and these Trojans travel in front of Jupiter on its orbit and behind Jupiter on its orbit. It's just loads and loads of sort of asteroid-type bodies that are stuck in these uh, Lagrange points. And, of course, Lagrange points is where they stick things like, hopefully, the James Webb Telescope, it's almost like you can see it as a kind of little hill in between two gravity wells where it's just on the edge where it will sort of just about stay in position. Oof. And, uh, yeah, they're beautiful. The, ma- the mathematics of Lagrange points are just incredible. And, yeah, Lagrange sorted it all out. And there's, you know, for satellites and spacecraft and, and understanding the solar system... It's one of the big things.
0: So, one of the things that always makes me think about this type of, uh, uh, like, a Lagrange point, is that like it's pre, obviously pre-industrial revolution. So, did he? Do, do you think someone like Lagrange could envision that one day somebody would be essentially placing something on one of his points? <laughs> do,
1: do you know what? I, I do you know what? I don't know. I really doubt it because that whole, it, it may have just been perceived as being absolutely impossible to sort of get out into space i mean there's you know not even close to getting there really mm. interesting wouldn't it to read the the i guess science fiction of the time if there is any oh you've you've opened up a really good cool thing to think about there the yeah, science I think, fiction i think the, the science fiction late of the time, 18th century
0: i mean the the, the... The fiction that was, wasn't fiction, it wasn't regarded as fiction, but it was basically the Bible, wasn't it? I mean, that was, they were your stories. <laughs> That's all you get. Well, no, it's, I mean, it's after
1: Shakespeare,
0: isn't it? Oh, of course. Yeah. I I, I didn't think about it. I was actually thinking about Chaucer just as you said that. I was like, Chris, uh, come on. People had imaginations <laughs> Chaucer, beyond the fucking Bible. Excuse my uh, F words there. I, I, I watched that uh, Eliz- Elizabeth, The Golden Age, the other night, which is the, it's Kate Blanchett playing. Definitely a far mm-hmm. a far more attractive Elizabeth I than I imagine she actually was, but um but yeah that was the, <laughs> that, that that was quite interesting because it was the you know the, the the defeating of the Spanish Armada which led to this sort of this era of 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 peace and prosperity and really a sort of a small cultural renaissance in the u k which Shakespeare was a part of, but it kind of wouldn't have happened if the Armada would have been successful. We would have just had you know five hundred years of the Inquisition. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, what what's not taught is that that about a year later the English got completely destroyed trying to rout the Spanish on the way back, so Price. they thought, right, let's go and finish them off, and they got absolutely m- mullered. Uh, but uh, we don't teach that in school for some reason. It's weird that, why. isn't it? It's
0: so strange. It's so weird that we don't, <laughs> don't teach that.
1: So that'd be interesting to, to, to uh, like, Spanish people, uh, like, listening to the podcast going, "What, what, what's this Spanish Armada thing? Never heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Lagrange, it's his birthday today. Hip, hip, array. What an absolute, what a blooming legend. Have a good one, mate. Now, also, on this day, in 1994... Was a spacecraft called Clementine? Oh my darling, oh my darling, oh my darling, Clementine. And that song is is perfect because that's it was named after that song. No, because after its mission, yeah, after its mission, it would be lost and gone forever, just like the Clementine in the
0: song. How cool is that? That's so cool. Oh, it's me just having a little sing song to myself.
1: This this is one of these spacecraft that's testing out the very latest sensors and equipment on s- satellites and sort of doing work sensing the moon and things like that and, and mapping mapping the moon using these various sensors. So it was a pretty important satellite. It didn't quite go to plan. It didn't finish off its job of looking at an asteroid. But hmm. it did a pretty good job. Not a finisher.
0: Job. Not, not a
1: finisher. Not a finisher, but still... But it is lost and gone forever, my little darling Clementine. (laughs) Uh, uh, But you're in Norway, aren't you today? I certainly am. I'm now living in Oslo. So I'm going to have a Norway section here. And here is, I need to read out, Sigmund Ede, who is our ace-level patron. He joins the two Justins. And I've got to give him a shout out. Sigmund, you are an absolute legend. And your help, your patronage, has helped by, for example, Harriet, a little microphone so she could do last week's show oh, and some more nice. co-hosting into the future. So stuff like that, like it, that's what keeps the podcast going. So Sigmund, you are indeed an absolute legend. And one day hopefully, when all this nightmare is over, uh, Chris and I will visit you in Norway and and we can have a drink together. What's what's the Norwegian drink of choice? We
0: we may well share an akavit together. um, Which is uh, a bit of an acquired taste, but once you get into it, there's no going back, to be honest. So, yeah, maybe some of that. Either that or a bunch of moonshine, because that's basically one of the the big things here.
1: (laughs) We could all go and watch the Northern Lights together.
0: I would love that. I've never
1: seen them. Oh, my God. That would be absolutely insane. Right, that's it. We're doing that. That's what we're doing. Sigmund, you're coming to see the Northern Lights with Chris and I. Um, Big up, Sigmund. get this. Another Norway thing. 1995, the Norwegian rocket incident. Den Norsk rocket Henderson. Oh, nice. No worries. Yeah, it, it was the Black Brandt 7 which, is a Nor- as you know, is a Norwegian research rocket. Of course. That launched as a test rocket, you know, doing science, doing valuable science. And it launched on the 25th of January, 1995. Ah, and out of Andoya rocket range is, uh, which is off the northwestern coast of Norway. Have you ever been up that high?
0: I've been very close to it. I was just looking at it before. It's on the same sort of archipelago as uh, as Lofoten, which is a, a beautiful part of Norway, and it's very close to where Kaya grew up. And when we say very close in Norwegian terms, it's actually like two, three hours drive. But she grew up in Narvik, <laughs> and Narvik is, is is fairly close to you. Sort of access those islands around. On the area of uh where where kaya's uh, dad was from which was lundigan lundigan um but yeah i've not been there but i do know Andoya means duck island quite well known for its fish it's known for space and it's known for cycling but it's called duck island so there you go i'd like no to way. go there and do some oh. cycling someday
1: well we should definitely take it in if we go to a uh go to norway definitely um on a trip um but here's the bad side of this uh there is a early warning radar station in olenegorsk yeah in russia in russia and uh, that picked this thing up now the crazy thing about this is when that rocket went into that bit of airspace that is the uh, bit of airspace that goes from (laughs) north dakota to Moscow uh, if you fired the Minuteman 3 nuclear missile (laughs) from from North Dakota. So this would, obviously, the Russians have got their radar trained on that particular corridor, and uh, they saw this missile coming up on the, blipping up on the radar, and, and, of course, at this point, it's like, whoa, what's this? What's this, right? Yeah. They don't have any idea what it is. Uh, and what the Russians are terrified of is that this is the exact sort of thing that America would do to wipe out their radar so so this type of nuclear device would go would explode very high up above russia send out loads of gamma rays creating this electromagnetic pulse an emp type attack yeah and blind all and blind and confuse all the Russian radar before an actual nuclear attack so that they couldn't you know, even attempt to try and shoot down or whatever they were going to do against uh, American attack. So they now have 10 minutes to decide whether to end the world, essentially. You know, this is like a retaliate, a retaliatory all-out nuclear strike. MAD, that would happen. yeah. <laughs> yeah, MAD, mutually assured destruction. So 10 minutes they've got to decide. So they track the trajectory for eight minutes so for those eight minutes they still don't know what this thing is and they take eight minutes only to find out that it's been launched from norway and is going in really the opposite direction it's not going in that right direction but in those eight minutes the cheget and now the cheget is the nuclear briefcase that boris yeltsin had you know this is the nuclear briefcase yeah where all the codes and the key and the and the big red button are in this briefcase, and it was activated, and Yeltsin had the nuclear keys out. It's the the only time, the first and only time that any state has got its nuclear briefcase activated and prepared. This is incredible. So, it is
0: absolutely amazing. <laughs> Uh, proper squeaky bum time for Boris Yeltsin there so
1: <laughs> yeah so <laughs> Yeltsin's sitting there and um, Boris I think back in 95 that was his boozy days as well wasn't it <laughs> old <laughs> Boris that's when he was doing his dancing crazy dancing on podiums while absolutely mullered <laughs> far as, if I can remember right <laughs> so it's like wow so literally two minutes to spare before yeah the Russians retaliate. Yeah, uh, uh, and apparently the Norwegians had, you know, had sent out notices to thirty countries, including Russia, to say, "Look, we're doing these t- scientific tests, just like they always do," but for some reason, it hadn't been passed up the chain to the radar operators, and so <laughs> yeah, it was very nearly the end of the
0: world. Do you think that's why they invented read reports on text messages?
1: <laughs> well, the crazy thing is, I mean, you think how often this happened? It happened with SpaceX where ESA you know, phoned up SpaceX and said, "You do know that one of your Starlinks is just about to knock out Aeolus, which is one of our newest, most technically advanced weather satellites, one of a kind." And it and it, and the Starlink might hit it. They didn't get a reply, so the so the European Space Agency had to move the the satellite themselves. Yeah. And then, and then SpaceX. Oh, yeah, we we didn't get the email. It's like what? It's just madness. This is just like insane. So yeah, it's when it's, the email
0: should have been a meeting.
1: Yeah, it's it's a bit like maybe get on the phone and say, "What are you going to do about this?" Because this is a little bit stressful. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah. So uh, yeah, that that's one of many times the world nearly ended because of nuclear. Uh, um,
0: it's just an absolute miracle that we're all still here isn't it (laughs) to be honest
1: it is actually when when you when you read about those the close calls with nuclear (laughs) nuclear accidents i mean i'm laughing but can you imagine if something like that
0: well we wouldn't be imagining now
1: really oh Uh, god (laughs) (laughs) uh it's at at, there's one more birthday there's one more birthday to do uh, uh and it's the it's the birthday of IRAS yes. IRAS, which was a which was the first ever infrared orbital observatory, which was launched on a Delta 3910 from Vandenberg on the twenty fifth of January nineteen
0: eighty three. I was the, four. Uh,
1: first ah, it's the first ever space telescope to perform a survey of the entire night sky in infrared. And it did it at about five different wavelengths. It was a 10-month mission. It was a joint project by the Americans, the Dutch, and the British. And um, yeah, it's the precursor to things like the Spitzer Space Telescope and the Infrared Space Observatory and, Hubble of, and Hubble's um, NICMOS instrument. So it's a a very, again, it's a very, very important instrument, but it discovered a lot of things. This is something that was, you know, it's the first time we looked at the universe in this particular light. Yeah. And it discovered things like planetary disks around stars. Uh, It discovered six comets out of the 22 from that year. Um, It also found, and this was announced on the 10th of December, 1983, that they had found unknown objects possibly as large as the planet Jupiter and possibly so close to Earth that it would be part of the solar system. So you're thinking in your head, planet nine, it's planet nine. Must be it. It, it, must be out, planet nine. This must be planet nine. <laughs> but it wasn't, of, although although you'd have called it planet 10 back then because Pluto was still a planet.
0: Of course, yeah, poor Pluto. Yeah. Um, uh,
1: however, it was a thing called intergalactic cirrus.
0: Space word of the week.
1: I think it is space word of the week, which is intergalactic cirrus. And yeah, this is interesting. I'd not heard this phrase before and it turned out it's quite hard to look up. Um, Mm. What it actually is, I was trying to find some papers and it seems that uh, this is uh, something that Sophia looks at quite a lot. You know, the, the telescope that's sort of Drilled into the side of a Boeing seven four seven, you know yeah. that space that they're able to sort of fly up into the upper atmosphere, glued so on like an ear
0: on the back of a mouse,
1: <laughs> exactly. And uh, so, yeah, it. Sophia looks at this stuff. Uh, it's 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 good for looking at this stuff, but it's the infrared cirrus, as its name suggests, are are clouds, uh, galactic clouds, and it's it's the sort of galactic filamentary st- structures that are seen everywhere in space. So so the way I kind of think of it is, is just very, very loose dust that's kind of got some structure to it um, all around the galaxy, and it's absolutely everywhere. But, of course, it, it clumps in different ways, so you kind of have these wispy clouds of it and things like that. But this dust is just about warm enough that it's got this infrared signature. And it's really useful as well because you can you can infer certain things about the way that the galaxy was forming and what the what the gravitational structure must be like and and things like that so i guess it points to things like dark matter and helps with things like that but it's a very interesting um phenomena that i that i'd never really seen that phrase
0: before intergalactic cirrus but the thing that fascinates me is that it's the size of jupiter and it's very close to earth did you say so it was within our it it wasn't
1: that so it it wasn't but but imagine you get a a a two-dimensional picture back and you get this you get what looks like a ball of light uh, or even just like the edge of it maybe maybe you you just sort of see a crescent and you infer that oh my god what is that well maybe it's a planet but then, what it actually is is something much, 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 much further away. That's hundreds of light years long, rather than the size of a planet. I get you. and it and, and it and it's the dust that's sort of basically so diffuse and and just about warm enough that it's that it's being picked up in these infrared wavelengths. Uh, it's it's away from things like stellar formation, so you don't get all these shock waves coming off um, supernovas and stuff like that. It, it it gives you a little bit of more insight into the structure of the universe and the structure of galaxies and how they all interconnect and stuff. So
0: I like it. I like the I like the like it rolls off the tongue. Intergalactic cirrus. It's it's really nice. Oh. You wouldn't think it's just talking about a little bit of old dust. So Chris, you had you had a you had a, a really nice story. I've got I've got a lovely story here. Um so first off, um little bit of news that is on space.com, came out today. Um And it is that the Apollo lander's Neil Armstrong's bootprint, and other human artifacts on the moon are now officially protected by a new US law, uh, which is really sort of something that you might not really think about, but it is part of human heritage up there. And because, you know, no one's been there for a very long time, but I think obviously people have just realized that we need to step this up because there's so many more missions that are going out there that they're compared to things like Machu Picchu, uh, where uh, the, it should be recognised globally, even though it's a, a law that's come about in that particular country, so it's a, a, kind of like a, a off Earth heritage, off off world heritage. Could you call it? So you know, it, it's it's. I think it's really important, but I mean, one of the the obviously um, problems with it is that it's pretty much unenforceable. I mean, you you could be uh, on a on a on a mission from any country and go up there and see. Neil Armstrong's boot prints and just to be like, nah. just give that a little wipe off and just scrub it away. And <laughs> nobody would really know it was you. And There's no way they could actually prove it either. So it's um, unless, you know, they do uh, send Space Force up there to just stand there next to his boot prints and the flag and just be like, no, nope, step back, please. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how they're going to enforce that one. So I, I just think it was quite an, an, an interesting thing that there's actually you know, legislation at work here to make sure we're preserving very important part of our history off the earth now as well as as on the earth um but the uh, second one uh, was quite an, a nice thing really I, I I think it was sort of i want to say heartwarming uh, and this is from actually reading this on the gov.uk site and it's a satellite powered app to spot loneliness in hotspots in uk cities so it's government backed and it's going to aim to tackle loneliness and it's been adopted first by leeds city council uh, so it's going to enable care view application ta- so it's, it's called sorry it's the, the satellite enabled carefew application it's going to tackle social isolation and loneliness in urban areas so about the help of uh, an, an army of professional volunteers who are attached to it uh, including uh, post police workers postal workers as well and charity workers they'll register on the app and if they see signs that somebody might be experiencing social isolation that could be anything from you know maybe uh, rubbish building up outside or you know maybe not answering the door that type of thing or, or just if a neighbours can and they can they can throw up a, a sort of a, a bit of a, a a beacon um and and using satellite technology really just to geotag that and enable possibly somebody to, to rally around that particular person so I just think it's quite a nice uh sort of heartwarming space story really it's got the connection to satellite technology so I <laughs> thought I'd include that one yeah, it's,
1: it's yeah it's quite tenuous isn't it to the satellite technology i wonder what precisely that is because you'd have thought you could just do that just off cell phone towers or something like that i wonder what the how Mm. it actually actually ties in but presumably that was a one of those statements off the uk space agency because they've got quite a few of those projects going where it's like trying to think of novel ways to use space yeah and 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 they do seem to concentrate on those yeah community issues which I think is, you know, and, and and medicine and NHS and stuff like that. Like the NHS has got quite a few of those um, sort of satellite-based space applications.
0: But I think they could also use it, like, to to start identifying moon hoaxes, you know what I mean? If you think that you live next door to one, we can just we can pinpoint flag them that person, flag them up. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and fire one of those <laughs> kinetic weapons from yeah. space.
0: Where you're sitting there in the pub, you know, sitting there in the pub, and when it, a mate starts firing up about, you know, oh, the flag was moving and stuff like that, you could just click a little button and just be like, oh, yeah, in the Fox and the Hounds in Worcestershire, there's someone talking bollocks.
1: <laughs> in the White Swan in Flyford Flavel, it's coming in. <laughs> Got a kinetic device going over that in two hours. We,
0: uh... <laughs> Yeah. So, um, oh, or, or it or it just sends in Buzz Aldrin, you know, what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> to say, punch them. What are you
1: do it? <laughs> Give you a punch. Well, it was his birthday the other day, wasn't he? Ninety-one, or all the best, day? fella. Ah, oh, what a what a what a diamond geezer. I saw a brilliant one. I can't let this go. I saw a brilliant map of the fifty gravitational wave events that have been verified so far oh my god and that's it's that is be-
0: s- snowballed that's incredible yeah
1: yeah yeah i know absolutely and and it's it's an interactive map so it's this beautiful um or like an infographic and it and it lines them up in their size so these these circles have uh, whatever the mass of the two objects coming together, their combined mass, so it de- determines the size of the circle. But there's also often little play buttons so you can listen to the sound, you know, this kind of representation of, of the sound from the interference pattern from uh, uh, LIGO and Virgo and it's and it's really really cool but but it also it also puts them in order of you know how far away they happened and and therefore you know what epoch they they actually happened in so it's kind of like a timeline and a distance line at the same time it's very very cool um and and you just sort of see all these it does make you it just gives you a sort of much I love those type of infographics because it gives you a slightly deeper understanding and like you said I was quite surprised that there'd been 50 of these events now that've yeah. been verified yeah so this was um this is by visualcinnamon.com. I've just gone onto the website uh, and Nadia it's Bremer.
0: yeah this Yeah, it this, it's... I'm going to get lost on this website Definitely. <laughs> <temporarily. laughs> so yeah it's use, really and... good
1: yeah that that is really good and another beautiful thing that I saw and this was over on bad astronomy the the phil plate um uh his his kind of blog which is always worth looking at and he was talking about a planetary nebula called STDR 56 which is in the constellation of triangulum and if if you know if you're one of the justins out in uh, down in australia you should be able to get a pretty good photo of this if you if you've got some good equipment. Uh, I think the photo that 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 is on this particular website is a 10 inch scope and something like a sixty hour sixty hours of exposure time. Um, yeah to get this image but it's absolutely beautiful it's it's this it's a a plant it looks like a planetary nebula it looks very wispy and it and they're calling it i what there's these two two basically this stdr are two amateur astronomers marcel dreschler and xavier strottner who are putting together a catalogue of these planetary nebulas, and uh, hence the STDR, which they're which they're kind of initials, and so that and this is number fifty six. And w- the funny thing about it is, is they're not even sure that it is a planetary nebula. So what could it, it be? Could, it it could well it could be like a supernova remnant. So if you think of, I mean, first of all, planetary nebula is a bit of a weird misnomer as in and you can blame H- uh, herschel for this because oh, when he first again. started yeah when he first started spotting them they did they sort of have because they're circular in shape they look like planets that are fading away so as you look through your telescope it's like oh it's like a planet but it's fading away so that's what they kind of thought they were because they didn't realize just how far away these things were Again, it's this scale thing. It's very, very hard to tell how far away something is when you're looking at it almost. There's no sort of frame of reference to to tell how far away it is. Hmm. But nowadays, we kind of understand what these things are. So planetary nebulas, if you have something like a star, uh, something like our sun, anything up to eight times the size of our sun will do this thing where the fuel starts running out, the, the hydrogen to helium fusion starts running out, and then it puffs up into a big red giant and yeah. so these this puffing up these outer shells of gas then start to get carried away by the stellar wind of the of the white dwarf this yeah ultra hot dense white dwarf the stellar remnant uh, that's left behind and this stellar wind starts puffing up these outer gases but because this stellar remnant or planetary nebula nucleus pnn is ge- is giving off so much uv energy that that excites the gas itself and the ga- all the different gases start glowing they actually start glowing a certain temperature and that causes all these beautiful uh, nebulas like the cat eye nebula the helix nebula ring nebula one of my favorites is the lemon slice nebula Ooh. that looks like a slice of lemon Sounds uh, very and, tasty. Uh, and obviously Hubble has has just really expanded the, the the view on these just possibly the most beautiful objects that you can kind of picture in the night sky um but if if the star is bigger you get Uh, you get a you get left with a neutron star and supernovas and supernova remnants are things like the crab nebula the crab nebula is quite a bit bigger than these planetary nebulas yeah um but but they're kind of similar looking you know they're still just as beautiful these supernova remnants but uh what's quite hard to tell is that there's two white dwarfs in the center of this goblet of fire nebula and one is 3800 light years away so that would mean the nebula was 33 light years across and that is just really too big for a planetary nebula the gas would have got so thin by that point it's highly unlikely you'd be able to see it from earth um but the other Um, white dwarf that looks like it's in the centre of all this This is 1130 light years away which would make the the sort of outer bubble only 10 light years across which is slightly more reasonable even then that's pretty massive but you still quite can't quite tell whether it is indeed a a planetary nebula or or a supernova remnant but here's the really cool thing. So you know I was sort of saying that you take this photo as uh, one of our previous guests ex- ex- explained if you can you can take it in the exact frequency of light that the nebula gets excited by the gas gets excited by the this white dwarf in the center and so you can really pick out the reds and the blues of the hydrogen and the oxygen glowing with all this radiation. Yeah. If you can do that accurately enough of course you can work out how fast this uh, bubble is expanding because if it's expanding, it's moving very fast. If it's moving very fast, it should have some form of redshift on it and so that you can measure it so precisely that you can tell how fast this bubble is going. Uh, And if it's going hundreds of thousands of kilometres a second, then you know it's probably a supernova remnant But if it's only going tens of kilometres a second, then it's probably a planetary nebula.
0: Ooh. So do we know? uh, Do we know which which it is?
1: No, so they don't know what it is because it would require, even though we've got some good amateur astrophotographers taking pictures of it, they haven't used one of these enormous observatories with much more exposure time. That's the only way you can get enough data and enough accuracy to do this spectral analysis.
0: Well, where are they? Are they Are they too busy or something?
1: Well, I guess that they're just too busy to, or too <sighs> lazy. I think we need just to, just start to start rallying round and
0: get them to get their acts together. Probably sitting there with their fingers up their whores, and you know, we we need to make sure. Let's let's put some pressure on these guys to put one of the big ones on it. We need to find out.
1: Well, well, well. Phil Plate does actually sort of really plead that people need to find this out because he's super curious himself, and and I'm I'm with him. It's well worth, I I will put the link to Bad Astronomy and that picture because it's absolutely beautiful. It's really, really cool. And I hope, I hope Justin, who's one of our other ace level patrons, who's great astrophotographer, I wonder if he's going to give it a go, see if he can capture that beauty.
0: Do it's it, do it, it's about, do it. Again, do. it's
1: one of these nebulas that's about the size of the full moon in its angular size. So when as you're looking up in the night sky, if you could see it, if it wasn't so ridiculously faint, it would be the size of the full moon. But there's no way you can see it with the naked eye. You know, no. you would be lucky if, if you have a clear enough sky to pick it up on very good astrophotography equipment. Yeah. Uh, but still. It's worth having a go, and that's my
0: challenge to Justin. Absolutely, absolutely. Go on, let's see this, Justin.
1: I've got a great interview. I've got a really good interview that that was the second half of an interview I did uh, way back in April. So this was at the start of uh, the first lockdown. Annoyingly, I was supposed to go round Kelvin's house. So it's Kelvin Long, who is an interstellar propulsion expert but the second half of the interview was about a paper he'd written called uh, about conscious stars Uh, uh, and it's a it's a thought experiment about if a star was conscious could it use its stellar wind to avoid crashing into other stars
0: i reckon it could i I haven't had the interview but i reckon it could
1: so it's a it's a (laughs) I reckon I really a star, like it.
0: a star can do anything it wants if it puts its mind to it.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I loved it because he he gave me a call while coming up with this idea, and to, for me to just double check some of his maths for him. I don't know why he phoned me, because, <laughs> but but I did, and I was really chuffed with myself that I I, I managed to work out uh, what he'd asked me to. And can and you do my taxes that,
0: this week for me? I haven't done them yet. Oh.
1: <laughs> For the first time ever, I've given my taxes to an accountant So I was so scared about them. Because I actually didn't want to pay tax on the podcast um, <laughs> earnings. Yeah. I thought it would be just so depressing if like all the, all the spod cap money went to the tax man. So I actually oh, paid no. the tax man to make sure it didn't.
0: Back to the interview. Sorry, I threw you off a bit there, Matt.
1: I, I actually phoned him up because I was, I was going to uh, put this out uh, this week. And he said that it's just the paper that he's written. is just about to go on archive this week. Yeah. Utter coincidence. I found it and he goes, yeah, it's, it's going to be on archive this week. Although it, it looks like it's on hold because it's such a controversial paper in terms of, you know, it's kind of (laughs) ludicrous premise. Um,
0: a little but, bit of controversy though.
1: Yeah, so hopefully we'll look if if it is on the archive obviously I'll put that link in in the in the notes as well. Yeah. Uh, I hope it, I mean I think it eventually will get on the archive but hopefully it'll be on Tuesday or Wednesday this week. So that would be it's it's definitely fun but we we sort of veer off into um into science, uh, science philosophy, the philosophy of science for the rest of the chat, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed. I look it. forward so, to uh, that. Um, so here is the second second half of, of Kelvin's chat. A cote the interplanetary podcast putting the ace. Back into space! Well, I'm going to ask you about your current thing about conscious stars, what that's about.
2: Yeah, so um, I began... Um, so for, first of all, I started thinking about SETI, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And, you know, um, I visited the Chelsea Hotel in, in New York, and I was trying to get into the exact room where Arthur C. Clarke and uh, Stanley Kubrick had their big debate about what the aliens in 2001 Space Odyssey should look like, because that's where Arthur was writing the, the book. And, uh, and the, the, the movie transcript at the same time. And uh, Arthur, I was arguing they wouldn't look anything like humans. And um, Stanley Kubrick wanted them to be humanoid. And they couldn't decide. And it turned out Carl Sagan was in town. So they called him up. So he went to the room as well. So you can imagine that hotel room, Stanley Kubrick. As cool as it gets. Carl Sagan. And it was Carl Sagan that suggested, my understanding is he suggested, don't show the aliens, leave it up to the imagination of the view, which is why you don't see them in 2001. But that's you know, an interesting debate. You know what, what would life look like And then it, in, in other star systems? Um, and then it's a question of what is life, right? So Schrodinger, Owen Schrodinger, because he's wrote a book, What is Life? government published Published. Um, he he was one of the people that predicted the DNA molecule essentially. I think he called it the organelle. Um, but he he argued that um, we should take a different perspective, more physics definition of life, such as a uh, life is resisting the, the decay to thermodynamic equilibrium. Okay, so um, so this got me thinking about um, life first of all. You know what what would life look like in other systems? Would it be humanoid? Or would it would be radically different, like huge globulous jelly type fish in a gas giant, for example. Or, and, uh, you know, and then what's intelligence, right? So this is a, so I, I became uh, interested in the orc, orchestrated objective reality theory of uh, Stuart Hameroff and uh, Roger Penrose, uh, which I think is a re- very elegant theory, the idea that um, consciousness is not defined at the neuron level, but actually at the microtubule level. So instead of uh, having something like, you know, artificial intelligence advocates believe that consciousness is defined by something like 10 to the power of 16 processing operations per second per brain, If you take the Hamrock model, which includes the extra 10 billion or so processing operations in the microtubules, then you're up at something like 10 to 26, 10 to 27 processing operations per second per brain. And so so that got me thinking about consciousness. Now, um, it it turned out that a friend of mine, Greg Matloff from New York City um, College of Technology had uh, come up with an interesting idea a few years back. Um, He was looking at um, dark matter. And he um, was not convinced by the current explanations for dark matter and galaxies. You, you, you know, you, you probably recall that um, the pro- basic problem is if you look at the, uh, the motion of, of stars in the galaxy, they should have bought uh, by the Kepler's laws. Mm. So um, if you imagine a plot of uh, a velocity against distance, um, you should see the velocity sort of going up and up. Um, but it flattens off unexpectedly, implying possibly that there's more mass in the galaxy. Than we see hence dark matter maybe it's matter we can't see it's non-luminous um and there's all kinds of explanations be proposed for dark matter um but greg was looking at in particular stars in the outer parts of spiral galaxies he was making the observation that if i remember rightly that uh, red um giant stars um move at very different velocities to um blue stars and uh this is something called uh, Paranago's discontinuity, and no no one quite understands what it is. But Greg, um, I, I was running a, um, a symposium quite a few years ago now, the BIS on Olive Stapledon. It was uh, a, Brit- a British philosopher from Liverpool who wrote a couple of wonderful books, Last and First Men and Star Maker in the nineteen thirties, who also influenced Arthur Clark. Clarke. And Stapledon had the idea. In, in one of these books, I think it was Star Maker, that stars were actually conscious entities that were moving under their own volition. Um, and I, I don't want to spoil it too much, but there's a, a horrendous scene in, in one of the one of the chapters where uh, the stars start committing suicide. They start, literally stars start going out. Um, I haven't read it for some years, but it's an amazing book. And uh, so, um, so and this is this, ultimately when um, Freeman Dyson came up with this concept of Dyson Spheres, which is really should be called Stapleton Dyson Spheres, the idea of trapping an enormous radiation cavity around a star to you know, like a high Kardashev civilization would do, to trap all of its radiation. He was actually getting the idea from Stapleton. It's just that he, had, he had wrote this paper in the 1960s. Um, actually, I, I only read it the other day. It's a, a one-page letter published in the journal where he does these amazing calculations. Um, so, But then, then I had a thought that... Um, so, you no, know, I should go back. That I, Greg, uh, we organised a symposium in London and Greg couldn't make the symposium. So, I presented his paper for him, which is on Olive Stapleton's um, idea of uh, volitional conscious stars, which is a very controversial idea. And at the time, I was editor of Jabers as well. And uh, we managed to agree to publish a letter on it um, in the journal. And then that got him started. And since then, he's been writing lots of papers, a book, and giving lots of talks on the idea that stars may be conscious entities. Now, this is really interesting because, of course, a lot of the historical religions in the past have worshipped the sun like it's a god. Um, um, so I, um, I started these conversations with Greg and a few others, um, including Rupert Sheldrake and uh, uh, Julian Goff, Philip Goff and um, um, Clement Vidal. Um, we've been discussing um, conscious stars, and this for the last few months. And um, we were meant to have a meeting in June, but we reschedule it. It's a private meeting, so but we're having these really interesting discussions on the idea of whether a star could be conscious. so, um, you know, I've I've not made up my mind because I studied astrophysics um, on my master's degree, and I did stellar structure and evolution, and I understand how stars are created and how the gas cloud fragments and collapses and produces fusion ignition when it gets to a certain percentage, I think it's 8% um, of the mass of the sun, and then you get stardom and fusion ignition of the core, burns the hydrogen for billions of years, and it moves through the main sequence eventually, you know, eventually it blows up to a red giant, or for other stars that become um, supernova, and some stars become black holes, they're massive enough, more than about three times the mass of the sun. So I, I have studied uh, um, astrophysics and stellar structure and um, I think we have a good handle on the equations of the star. Um, so I was a bit sceptical. Uh, but I started doing some calculations just out of interest, um, just to as a thought experiment, sorry, on, on the idea of volitional motion. So Julian um, had suggested to me that, could a star actually use its stellar wind or coronal mass ejections to push itself? Um, and so I've, I've actually been doing this calculation for the last week. Um, and originally, when I did the calculations, I concluded it's just too weak. I mean, it's it's like a million times weaker than a ion thruster in terms of the actual. Uh, if you use it, if you assume it's like a big rocket; it can push itself. Um, but I since rerun those calculations and with coronal mass ejections in particular, and uh, it's amazing that you can actually get up to um, decent velocities and actually push the star. Um, and I found that uh, actually. You know, it's possible um, to move the star over tens of AU um, in something like you know 100,000 years, um, which is actually comparable to um, the time scales for collision avoidance of another stellar system. If there was another planetary system coming towards us and it looked like we were on a collision course, when I say collisions, I don't mean the, the stars are physically going to touch or the planets. They're Too far apart, but I mean, the gravitationally, um, they will get get so close that they will perturb planetary orbits. Um, and I found that the um, the actual adjustments you need to make to the star's position to move it away from that risk um, is that similar sort of timescale. It takes over one hundred thousand years or so. Um, so it doesn't mean it doesn't mean to say that i think it's size of conscience I'm doing it as a thought experiment and uh i wrote a paper on it which just got out to those guys and looking forward to getting their feedback
1: it's when you said it to me i, I it, it really just reminded me of one of my favorite ever bits in any book ever and and it's uh, Rudy Rucker's where Tetralogy. It, it's um it's it starts off with uh i think it's hardware wet wear and it just goes and, and it's 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 all the different wares i can't i can't remember what order they're in but uh, the, i think it's the third book consciousness has been able to be transferred onto this mold it's kind of weird mold type stuff that has a kind of 11, slime mold. It, well it's yeah it's kind of like that but it's it's yeah. it's it's a totally weird thing that's in the book that sort of comes into he, he mentions it in a few other books as well but This mold uh, takes on a personality, gets loaded with a consciousness, and one of the main like there's two main characters that are that are molds, and they're traveling in a spacecraft when uh, they're bombarded by a that by a stellar wind, and that stellar wind has all the information of a stellar consciousness embedded in it. And the stellar consciousness is able to to use the mould to come alive. So you lose two of the main characters that you've just come to know in one page, and it uh, is taken over by a stellar consciousness. Yeah. And uh, and yeah, Rudy Rucker is very much about the uh, consciousness being in absolutely any object that has enough that any object has enough compl- complexity to be conscious. But it's a really, really interesting concept in that book, and, and it's dealt with all the way through, and, you, and, it, and it ties back to the very early books where the, the AIs and the robots have Stellar Wind as a way of randomizing their thoughts, and then it turns out know that they've been directed by the Stellar Consciences all along. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a really uh, it's <laughs> it's a great con- it's a great sci-fi concept. But it's yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean. It would certainly. I mean, that really would be the most astounding uh, explanation for uh, dark matter ever, wouldn't it?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I have to say that I, I'm not, I'm not optimistic that this is what (laughs) dark matter is. No, Uh, I I have my own ideas that I I won't go into at the moment, but um, I would say that um, um, I I think it's an interesting. uh, It's not even at the the level of a hypothesis, right? So. Mm. You know, you know, in order for a hypothesis to, uh, you have to come up with a testable prediction. Greg Matloff would argue me with me that it is because he's come up with a way of testing it. But, um, and it's sort of, it's related to ideas of panpsychism. Um, but I, um, I, I think you know, in order to get to theory, then you need to develop the evidence. So I would say it's conjecture at the moment. And, um, but I, I you know, I'm a physicist. And I like doing fun things. So I just i to run the calculations on the volitional motion idea. Um. And I'm still sort of, as saying, the steps of doing that. I'm also looking at uh, the idea of a stars of brain, um, comparing it to this itself is questionable. Human consciousness. Um, so you know, you know, we know that um, the neuron compaction density in the brain is pretty high compared to other um, mammals and other animals on Earth. Um, so if you just take human consciousness, so I mentioned the sort of processing operations um, speed earlier, um, sort of processing at 100 hertz. And, and then you can look at the, um, the similar sort of um, the, what's the process and um, speeds in in the in the sun in the star um, in terms of uh, how fast are sound waves moving moving? Um, what's the uh, you know the helioseismology? What's the frequencies of those? And just a very quick cursory look, you know, this is not published work at all, and it's mm. the back of the envelope stuff. But I concluded that if a star was conscious, then it's thinking a lot slower. Than a human brain, possibly of order ten to the power of five times slower, um, which is interesting. That ten to the five number is also the you know, hundred thousand years I was talking about. Um, but um, and that, that that makes sense in some ways. I mean, when you think about there's ideas of trees or forests that have some ability to commun- communicate with each other. You know, if if a forest there's a certain tree which, if it gets infected by um, a particular um, aphid. And it, start, it starts generating a, a fluid, a pus. And that, the purpose of that is to alert all of the other trees in the forest. And all the other trees then develop this pus. And it's to basically ward off the aphids, right? So, so there's there's an argument that um, trees have a, a form of communication, but it, we don't recognise it because we think in very quick timescales. We think in terms of human timescales and the rest of the animals in, in our kingdom. Um, but actually, if there is a consciousness in other systems uh, or consciousness-like behaviour um, for big systems um, like mycelium uh, or, or forests or stars, I think it would be a lot slower in terms of the thought processes. Um, and so that makes sense that a star would be thinking a lot slower. Uh, but then that brings a problem for me in terms of uh, if it is the case that it's thinking of about a 10 to the power of 5 years, five to the power of 5 times slower than the human brain, then you know how is it getting the information about... Um, you know, volitional motion, How's it getting the information that there's a stellar system coming towards it um, because it takes a long time for that information to arrive but it a- actually, relatively, to, relative to that speed is quick because it's travelling at the speed of light, right, so it, it knows within years um, but then it's got to process that information in its in its huge brain. So it's an interesting idea. I would say it's in the phase of science fiction. Um, another, another thought experiment I came up with or, or an observation, I should say, which I pointed out to my colleagues and I think they're they hadn't realized this themselves, is that if it was the case that a star was conscious, um, this actually um, then prohibits Dyson spheres, because it would not be moral or ethical to put a huge radiation cavity around an entity that we think may have some level of consciousness. And so if we can prove that stars are conscious, which I as I'm not optimistic about... um, this would, in my view, make it less likely that you could ever build a Dyson stable and sphere. Um, and, and the opposite is, is likely also true. Because, uh, you know, although morality and ethics would differ with different civilizations the universe, if they exist, um, you know, I, I tend to think philosophically that they would um, asymptote towards a certain understanding of the respect of, um, of life and its value. And, uh, and and they therefore wouldn't do that. So it, it brings in the whole question of you know cartilage of civilizations, the idea that cartage of one, you used to utilize the energy of an entire planet, cartage of two, entire star. Um, is that what you would actually do? Would you actually trap trap a radiation cavity around a star and capture all of its radiation? Because then if it you then prevent it from any volition of its own. It's it's effectively a star prison. Yeah. Um and to me this this is a humanism versus naturalism argument.
1: Yeah, I mean, you could you could argue that there's a similar sort of thing already going on with, say, Mars exploration. Where, if if say uh, Mars 2020 rover uh, detects microbes on the Martian planet that are native to Mars, then some people would argue that that literally puts the kibosh on us going to Mars to inhabit it because we would destroy that well, we'd, we would go into a pristine environment and destroy that um, uh, native life and that wouldn't be ethical. So it, it's, it's a similar sort of argument, isn't it, that, that exploration always has some huge moral choices and 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 it's the same <laughs> with with getting energy, et cetera, et cetera. There's, there's always some moral choices somewhere down the line to have to make.
2: Yeah, I think my own perspective is uh, um, that, Although I have enormous respect for the natural world, and I believe we should live in cooperation with it, not in competition with it, um, I also think that um, it is our our first priority, so think of it as triage, if you like, is to um, is human life as primacy. That, is, that our job is to first of all look after ourselves um, and then to look after others if we can. Um, so my, my argument would be that if we, if, if we found microbes on Mars... Um, you know, and hopefully they were ubiquitous. And it wouldn't, therefore, matter if we um, farmed a few of them, or I I personally would not allow that to stop our progress on Mars. I think we should build a Mars colony. And we should find a way um, to use those microbes for our benefit um, to create an interest in ecology, which we can exist in.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I agree. I mean, I I don't separate humans out of nature anything anyway so i i kind of think that everything we do is is a natural process i mean i even call buildings natural (laughs) because that's the way i see it i I think you know we're we're just every other animal behaves in the same way birds build nests and you don't the bird doesn't look at itself and say god i was building that nest over some moss how unethical of myself Mm
2: -hmm.
1: (laughs) so yeah it's i i don't know it's 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 it opens up some uh, interesting things. But that, it's it's a really interesting thing, stellar consciousness and the thought that, yeah, the, I mean, that really would be such an incredible um, explanation for uh, for dark matter. I mean, we, we, I, we, we had one on the show a few weeks ago, which was um, dark matter is information. And someone from Southampton University was suggesting that in the same way that um, energy has mass, then maybe information itself has mass as well, and with a with a few calculations, she was showing that actually that would explain dark matter. If the 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 information that's in a galaxy cluster or in a in a in a galaxy uh, would be enough, would that this extra mass from the information contained within it would be would be dark matter, which I thought yeah. was really interesting.
2: Yeah, I, I have my own view on it. Um, I'll maybe talk about it in a future podcast, but yeah, uh, I, I'm doing some calculations at the moment. Um, um, it's not something I've traditionally been interested in. I'm more interested in dark energy than dark matter, but, um, you know, um, I, I had an idea recently, which I'm trying to pursue at the moment. And, uh, I like to sort of get something written up and scrutinized. What I tend to do when I write the paper is I pass it around a few friends to act as my filters before I show it to anyone else. Yeah. Um, and uh, but yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, this is the other thing. We go back to the the space travel interstellar question. I mean, there's so much we don't understand. I mean, we we've made so much progress in the scientific endeavour, particularly since the Enlightenment. But we there's still so, so much we don't understand. And uh you know what is dark matter? what is dark energy? Um, how can we test string theory? Um, we still haven't discovered the graviton particle. we've only barely just detected the Higgs boson in the last couple of years um, and so you know, are there extra dimensions? Um, is there any evidence of intelligent life outside of this biosphere, let alone life outside of this biosphere? What are we doing? I mean, we're just, these big questions are so obvious, and um, we should be really exploring them. We're bigger, and uh, we're not. And the reason we're not is because we're caught up in our own problems and our own troubles. Um, you have know, too much nation state rivalry, for example, and not enough co- um, cooperation. And um, yeah, you know, we talked about the Chinese earlier. Um, I actually learned when I was in Bremen that they're planning to launch a 100 AU mission. Um, like a Voyager probe mission, um, so good on them. You know, I hope that they um, they do that, and it'd be interesting to see the results. Um, I'd like to see maybe we can help them, and uh, you know, make sure that mission is a success. If we can get access to the data, because it, it it benefits all of us. Um, so uh, yeah, um, we definitely need a, a better cosmic perspective, uh, and this is uh, you know my own view, of my own journey, uh, which really started in about two thousand and seven. Um, in, in in terms of uh, this kind of these exotic subjects and uh, is I realised that first of all I, I realised I don't understand human beings at all which is an interesting thing to realise um, and uh, my friends often told me that like, I don't understand people um, but secondly um, we're so complicated I mean human beings we're full of emotions and uh, we're just so complicated and we're so disorganized i mean if we could just something like apollo it forces us to focus on something right so or something like trying to put together the human genome project or just these big projects really focus us and um i'm hopeful that one thing that will come out of this horrific pandemic uh which is you know sadly seen the loss of enormous amounts of life around the world is that it refocuses our priorities a little bit um, makes us pay a bit more attention to the broader picture and also helps us to uh focus on what some of the existential threats really are to humankind i mean what you know other than pandemics um you know like a lot of people i've not didn't know lo- a lot about pandemics but when this started i started doing research and uh, reading it and it's like oh i didn't know about all those ones and mm. you see how many people have been lost over the years and it's like we have this uh, forgetful memory we forget but it's all in the books and in the history books. Um, One of the periods in history I became interested in was the Younger Dryas, sort of 12,500 years ago. And there is pretty strong evidence of a cometary or asteroid impact on the North American um, ice sheet, um, which basically led to those massive melt flows of water um, and uh, ended the last ice age effectively. Um, So, um, you know, we know that um, impact events occur. We saw one, was it 2001? We saw the Jupiter collision? 2000?
1: Hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, whenever it was, yeah, yeah. The, yeah uh, well, that was amazing. The, the Shoemaker. You know, Shoe uh, yeah, Shoemaker. Yeah. 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 Shoemaker. And then the, uh, there's the, you know, we had uh,
2: an impact in Russia. It was only a year or so ago. And we know that impacts occur all the time. Um, I'm not convinced that we're doing enough because, you know, we can have a massive, massive catastrophic failure of a society overnight, one of those impacts a city. If that one that hit Russia last year had had a slightly different angle or different speed, you know, come in at a slightly different entry point, um, it could have been a very different, we could have been talking about that. We could have been saying, how come we've lost half a million people? Um, we need to pay more attention to these um, bigger problems. Humankind is on this beautiful planet, um, you know, the the power blue dot, as uh, Carl Sagan used to call it, And we're very fortunate. You know, we've got these uh, beautiful jungles and, uh, and the dry deserts and um, the Antarctic and the, the Arctic and just such very different terrains we can, we can explore and learn about life and millions and millions of different species of life. Um, but we really need to pay attention to the threats that, this, that humankind and all of the life on this planet Spaces in the bigger picture, uh, whether it's pandemics or asteroidal impacts. And, uh, you know, I, I would like to see more focus on that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's so, so hard. I mean, you're saying that you didn't understand humans. I don't think humans understand themselves or anyone really. It's very, very difficult to uh, particularly long term thinking, long, long scale uh, disasters and catastrophes like pandemics. I mean, you'll have scientists that knew that this pandemic was definitely going to happen. You know, it's like, this is definitely going to happen. But to be able to sort of motivate people and to be able to see that it's going to happen, even if they see a documentary and they're watching it and go, God, yeah, that's amazing. Next day, they'll have forgotten it. They'll have forgotten just how ridiculous we should be doing something about it and it and it's the same with asteroid strike i mean asteroid strikes is is the classic one and super volcanoes and mega tsunamis and all these sort of things i mean everyone's forgotten the nuclear threat as well which is still very very real and it's Mm. and it's like yeah how do you how do you over how do humans overcome that psychology and i hope you're right about the pandemic issue that that once the pandemic has been controlled and we're at the other side, that that internationally we'll have a whole new mindset of of thinking about these things. I just hope that the right people win the narrative at that point, because there's been certain times in history where things horrible things happen and the wrong people win the narrative. And it's just like, ah, you, they're missed opportunities in that sense.
2: Yeah, I, I think my perspective is that um, we need to get away from politicising science. Um, whatever the field I won't go into any specific fields but whatever the field um, science needs to maintain its objectivity uh, and its ability to be non-biased you know science has as much colour and flavour as any discipline of human thought I mean as humans you only got to look at Albert Einstein's life to see how amazing his life was let let alone his physics Um, but we need to get away from uh, um, you know um, the biased that influences science. Scientists should be in a position where they can, just like a, a professor who has tenure in principle, can make a statement on a position of something, and there is little repercussions uh, because what's primary is the integrity of free speech. And uh, when we lose free speech, um, you know, we lose um, I, I think a lot uh, because yes. A lot of free speech can be um, inflammatory, or um, you know, big, bigoted, or whatever, whatever um, um, pseudonym you want to apply to it. But I, I think that you know, that's a small minority. The, what's important is diversity, diversity of views. So, as any field of thought, um, whether it's you know, what we should do about asteroids, pandemics, or Or climate change, or whatever it is we're talking about, um, I feel that um, science should be opened up to the maximum possible broadest views. And uh, the object, the objectivity, the integrity of those scientists' scientists' objectivity should be preserved. And then the the politicians um, need to be better educated in how to take that information and turn it into policy. Um, Because I, I fear, in particular with the current pandemic, I'm not criticizing. I'm in the UK, but I'm not going to criticise the UK government because it's in a, a very difficult circumstance having to deal with this, this tsunami which rushed at us, although you could argue it was predicted by mm-hmm. someone, of said um, We should have better preparedness. But um, I do worry about, um, you know, they're listening to certain um, science advice and to the exclusion of others. And Freeman Dyson took a view in his life that he was a contrarian. He, if he was in a room and there was consensus developing around a particular viewpoint, he would deliberately take an extreme view that's the opposite of all the others. Not to be awkward, um, but because it forces a debate. It forces a discussion about the subject. And uh, in order to have a proper debate about something, we need extremes of positions. And, uh, and that, that's one of the things I like about multi, multiple religions around the world. Um, you know, Because no one really knows the answers to you know the omniscience, the omnipotence of the of uh, the cosmos, but um, they all have different perspectives, and it enables you to kind of take your own bearing and and help to um, guide your own life because you can look at those different extreme points of view. Um, so this is where science needs to get back to; it needs to get away from politicisation of of, uh, of facts and truth.
1: Yeah, it's it's amazing, isn't it? The philosophy of science has become. Not such a, a well-taught subject anymore. I mean, if you think back to the sort of greats like Bertrand Russell and people like that, who I mean, Bertrand Russell pretty much says exactly what you've just said. Then he's, it's he's very much about that whole. It's about it's about the objectivity, but sometimes other people have different points of view, and you should you need to listen to them. And sometimes you might come to different conclusions, and that's that, you know. And you just have to learn to live with each other and 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 not want to. Not want to have the truth because it's convenient and it's just whatever the truth actually turns out to be, and you just have to accept it. And it's just like I, mm. the philosophy of science is, 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 I don't, it's somehow not that trendy a subject anymore. It's not, it's not thought of as a kind of highbrow sort of thing, but I, I think you're right. I think it's actually extremely, extremely important because the mm. philosophy of science will. Will yeah tell politicians how they're supposed to respond to the scientists and everything else. So, yeah, I mean, the only good thing about this, the, the government response, I would say, to COVID nineteen, is at least they are listening to the scientists. At least there is science involved. Whether whether their particular response to it is perfect or not, is is definitely going to be something that's going to be picked at for years and years and years to come but you can look at some of the other nations around the world and their failure to even engage with the scientists on the subject and and it's absolutely shocking
2: yeah and also um i think it's okay to disagree with people right so there's the other thing if people have a different i mean the actual definition of an argument is um you know two two different ideas that sort of are not consistent and um it's it's okay to have. It's not. Doesn't mean it has to be volatile or yeah. aggravational. You can disagree with someone, um, but what you know what needs to be the arbiter, the test, is truth. And so, if someone makes a statement about something, um, you should be able to test that statement against facts, against truth, the, what, what we know. And that seems to be where we are at. The moment is in a war for what is truth, which is a you know a bit sad. And I, and I think that that war is happening. Um, particularly in social media, because um, we live in a poorly educated populace. Um, you know, we go back to the Roman and Greek times, they talk about things like the trivium and the quadrivium, and you know, the importance of mathematics and reasoning and ability to form a logical argument and, uh, you know, having knowledge of geometry and architecture and astronomy and all the disciplines of thought. Um, I think that, the problem is people don't know how to construct an argument. And they don't know how, which means they don't necessarily know how to take apart an argument. So when you get people making statements of what they think is truth, um, or on science, which then has a bearing on policy, um, people don't necessarily know how to uh, um you know take that apart and understand whether the argument they've made is a valid one, or is it a logical fallacy, for example? Um, and I, I frequently watch the news and just see politicians doing this all the time, that they contradict themselves in their statements. Um, we saw that only a week ago, but I won't go into it. Um, and so, I, I, again, when I go back to education, um, I think it's really important that we educate the people, the population. Um, I mentioned that I came from humble beginnings, and uh, my education really came about post-school, not during school. And um, and I self-taught myself a lot of things. Um, you know, I read books on logic and reasoning and how to construct arguments and so forth. And uh, this is really important um, because uh, that's how you can see through the noise, um, particularly when we live in this world where we're just inundated with information. I mean, it's just so much coming at us every day through our iPhones, through the news, through the radio and podcasts and and um, What do we believe is true? And I, and I think that critical thinking is a really important skill, um, and it goes to all of our endeavours.
1: Oh yeah, I mean I, I couldn't agree. I mean that's one of the things that keeps me in my job as as a as a lecturer. I I, I think that higher education is is so important, and for me, it's the kind of uh, what I do notice is that the way that. The way that the school system has gone is that it's so results focused that of course, as a teacher, you're you're sitting there going, Well, I've got to get some good results. And the best there's a shortcut to getting good results, and that's to teach children the answers. And one of the things that you miss out on then is to teach children how to get to those answers themselves. Teach them how to think and teach them how to uh, acquire knowledge and teach them how to research but if you've got this pressure of league tables and stuff like that then of course it's going to go out the window you've literally set up a system <laughs> that that skews the whole table towards uh, the wrong type of learning and it's yeah. it's really depressing so
2: one of my heroes was uh richard feynman a physicist mm. and uh, he um he had the view that you know it's about understanding so you, in, in principle, if you understand the foundations of physics, you sh- you can derive everything else that is claimed to exist, if you understand the foundations. And so that that is, I think, where the emphasis needs to be, at understanding. So what I fear is happening is that um, children are being taught to pass exam papers, um, and they're getting lots of really high grades, um, but it doesn't mean they have an understanding. So, it, you know, they might have done some... Uh, uh, papers on equations of motion or something like that, but did he actually understand what, what they're what they're doing? I mean, I mean, I remember uh, even on my master's degree, I did a, uh, an exam. My general relativity exam was a Russian teacher. You I know, mean, typical Russians are very very smart people, and uh, he announced um, at the start of the exam, no calculator. I, uh, this is two thousand and two, and we sort of took a big breath of air. What? No calculator. We were we were horrified. How like, I'm going to do an exam on general relativity with no calculator. And um, I, I basically had to do this exam paper. And I remember, you know, doing these calculations uh, back of envelope, powers of ten notation, and working out the coefficients. There's a particular problem I had to calculate with two neutron stars colliding, and I had to work out wave them for the gravitational wave. And I just remembered from memory that it was of order ten to the minus eleven meters. And it was one of the proudest moments of my life when I got to this long calculation and was without a calculator and I got to 10 to the minus 11 meters. I knew it was correct. Um, so, um, but it turned out he was wrong to have done that, by the way. Um, the university told him off for it. But um, but my point is that, um, you know, the ability to do uh, those sort of calculations um, and understand what you're actually calculating um, is, a, is an important part of science. And um, And it's the same in any field, you know, whether it's languages or, or history, I think academic rigour is really important, but I don't think the best way to drive that academic rigour is necessarily through tests, right? So maybe at the higher level, the eight, eight, higher age level, you need you need those exams. But um, I am not keen, for example, on children being tested at all before the age of ten. Mm. I think children should be children, and they should just have fun and learn through fun. And I think that's what it should be about. Um, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of. Uh, um, I can't remember his name though. It's one of the biggest TED lectures on, on TED. Um, Sir, so, uh, oh, I can't remember his name. He's a for, former member of the Shakespeare Company in Stratford upon Avon. Um, but he, he gave a very good talk on creativity, and uh, you know, I think creativity is also very important. Um, you know, he was criticising that, you know, the, the science, and engineering, and maths tends to be given more priority. I'm not sure that's true, but he was trying to make the point that um, we mustn't forget about creativity because creativity is what solves problems and I also agree I think um, creativity and imagination is, is very important I mean I, my daughter's very creative my oldest daughter she's making things all the time and I, I was like how did you come up with that and I try to encourage it you know but she doesn't re- really need the encourage it. she's making things um, yeah. just sounding things and we lose that as we get older I mean I don't, do- I,
1: I don't even get the argument about maths for example not being creative I I distinctly remember, and I still have this, where writing a song or finishing a maths equation have exactly the same feeling of uh, of of a creative leap for me. I, it's like literally, it's so creative yeah. to, to 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 solve a mathematical problem in the same way as writing a song. It's it's exactly the same thing. So, uh, yeah, the, to, to be encouraged to be creative. I mean, creativity is all that we have. Uh, particularly moving into the era of AI and machine learning and everything else, you know, human creativity is going to become more and more and more and more important. You know, Who cares yeah. that you can <laughs> operate a calculator because my computer can do it five times faster than you. <laughs>
2: yeah. What's the same with the conscious stars um, debate? You know I mean it's probably not the case that stars are conscious. Um, that's my position at the moment, but it's a heck of a lot of fun. Yeah. I I know that, and, exactly that
1: and and that's why I, I I love having that stuff on our on, on my podcast because I think there is a yeah what why not deal with why not deal with something that would be considered outside of mainstream science well just because it's outside of mainstream science doesn't mean that it's necessarily wrong it just means that it's fun it's creative it's got some kind of um it's not you know it's just it's not just something made up that's completely ridiculous. It has some kind of fun element to it, and and it's and it and maybe it will lead to something. I mean, it would be the most astounding discovery ever. <laughs> the dark matter was that, but but yeah, I I I think that there's, I there's one point that you the, that you did make, and that's the, um, uh, this ability to to sort of argue with someone, and realise that you're arguing against the things that they believe, and not the things that they think they are and a lot of the time now i think a lot of people are their their entire narrative about who they are is wrapped up in their beliefs and the things that they believe in and therefore it's very very hard to have arguments because the moment you start unpicking some of the things that they're saying they feel as though you're having you're you're having a go at them yeah and that okay. is so common and it's and I've, I must admit I've never really had that occasionally someone will say something that where it will make me angry but <laughs> but I, I I realize how wrong that is but I realize that when you talk to people it's very very hard to bring people out of certain positions that you feel are wrong or that they're that they're talking nonsense and you only have to see how that un, un how that kind of unwraps on social media. You you say something and if someone disagrees with you, they don't have a go at the point that you're making. They have a go at you. They say, yeah. Oh, you're an absolute four letter word for believing that. It's like please yeah. just don't do the ad hominem thing. Just That's do was gonna say
2: it's an ad hominem argument in logic, but yeah, it's, uh, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean it's yeah, I mean that that, that whole the logical I mean, logical fallacies are a great place to start, I think, when it when it's sort of looking at how to Looking at reason and, and critical thinking. I think that's
2: Yeah. I mean, I i I I you kind of you don't want to go either extreme because it, the thing is if you just become a Vulcan and just did logic, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Then you kind of potentially kill the creativity because you're only you're only prepared to speculate based on tiny perturbations of the known. Right. And so but if you're prepared to be creative, I mean the idea of thinking about conscious style. Is not logical because there's not there's nothing in our knowledge of science in the world of the natural world that you could extrapolate and say therefore it's possible a star may be conscious. It's very difficult. There's nothing you can extrapolate from. So therefore, it's a complete creative jump um, that's not based on any inference of anything that's known. But what you can do is you can uh, you can apply our knowledge of physics, for example. And you to that system and say, well, if it was conscious, what would it look like? And then once you run the numbers, um, you can see what's possible and what isn't, right? So may, maybe there's a reality, another universe where such a thing would have been possible. This, this is the same for things like wormholes and, and warp drive. Um, you know, there's no evidence at the moment in physics that wormholes or warp drive exist artificially or naturally. Uh, I would argue that wormholes are slightly more plausible than warp walk drive um, for different reasons, but. Um, however, um, you know people publish papers on them all the time. The idea of taking the Einstein field equation and uh, taking the, the the space-time metric and reshaping it to give a different geometry, a different coordinate frame, which then changes your equations of motion, and then you run, run the Einstein field equation to work out the properties of that system. And what you find is you need enormous mass and negative energy in particular, which doesn't exist naturally in the universe. Um, but we have ideas to create negative energy, something called the Casimir effect. So that's interesting. It's like, okay, so is it possible that we could create microscopic wormholes? Well, it may be. There, there are various reasons in physics for thinking it might be possible at the microscopic level. Um, if you could do, because you know, they go go down to the microscopic level. What is fundamentally space? You got, you got two competing theories of string theory, uh, which sees uh, tiny particles as like oscillations on strings, and that's really a, a kind of ground unified theory successor to Einstein's pursuit of that. Um, so it's a success to Einstein. And you've got others like loop quantum gravity, which is, they're actually looking at this discretization of space itself mm-hmm. in a way that you'd have, say, atomic energy levels in an atom. Well, I, John Wheeler published a paper years ago where he showed that um, you go down to the quantum level, uh, right down to the Planck scale, because of the quantum uncertainty, you have what's called space-time foam. And so space and time are intermixing. And uh, you get all these little tiny... Um, uh, chaos of um, this it's not you know necessarily a continuum it's it's there's just this chaos and uh, of, of these uh, dimensions coming in and out of existence um, and it's possible that you can in principle take one of those dimensions and inflate it for a second so it goes bigger and then maybe you could pass a particle through it or even a photon of information you know it was just one bit of information that's then you know. A form of telecommunication which uh, which would would be exceed the uh, light barrier. Um, so that's one way we think we could do it. But this is uh, you know and this goes to spooky action of the distance in quantum entanglement as well, which is another subject. So we know there's some interesting things in physics we need to look at, um, which is pointing that the world is a lot more complicated than we think it is. Um, you know the world's a stage, as uh, Shakespeare said, but there's um, there's a lot of complicated stuff going on underneath it yep. and behind it and i'd
1: like to pull back that curtain and see what it is yeah we yeah we all would well <laughs> only i was brainy enough to even start the uh, yeah i it, it's it's really fascinating all all that stuff of 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 where where can we go it, it's amazing isn't it that like 30 years ago they thought they'd almost solved science that we were almost there that we were at the you know the
2: even hawking said it yeah
1: <laughs> And it's just like it. we seem further away now than we've ever done because we've opened up so many different areas of of things to look at. Now, the point I was going to make about your stellar consciousness, I think what's great about that is is the having that uh, creative urge to have a look at something like that. And you never actually know that the stellar consciousness might be a complete dead end and complete, but it will never be a waste of time because you'll be able to see it may have given you insights into something else. The fact that you've done these equations to look at what other things might be conscious. It might, you might some someday be walking down the road and have another insight that Mm. you wouldn't have had, had you not have sort of put your brain to this other puzzle. And that's what I love about creativity. It's, it's this, it's this never ending onion that keeps going down and down and down and down and down. And the more creative you are, suddenly the more ideas keep coming in. This is what, what, I mean, songwriting, for example, is a classic. The the more songs you write, the more likelihood it is that you're going to hit across this great, great song. Uh, and, and, And just because you wasted your time on a song that was fairly mediocre or even rubbish, that song, you may not have been able to get to your great song without writing this mediocre song. So don't worry about it. Just enjoy the process. Uh, yeah, it's, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. But
2: it's, uh, it, it reminds me of, uh, you know, you go off in the, into the Amazon rainforest um, because you've been given a grant to try and find a particular beetle or something, and you stumble across an ancient Aztec culture or something, you know, or, or civilization that we didn't exist Or um These are sorts of... Discuss- Sometimes science needs to be done just for science' sake, just for the exploration's sake, and more of that.
1: Oh, absolutely. I, I I think it has to be done. I think speculative science and and just research, you never know where it's gonna go. You never know where it's gonna go. And it and it seems like all the biggest breakthroughs in science have always been like that. You never know there's no way that Einstein could have known that looking at the speed of light and and doing all those things was going to lead to the invention of the atomic bomb, for example. Yeah. And you know, if if they if he had a known God would he have got a big grant to have done it How <laughs> which would the American government have given him to go uh, uh, yeah here's, here's a big grant for you to come up with a nuclear bomb mm-hmm. um, so you know you just never know where it's going to go and I think that's that's why it's really important that it's protected so
2: that, that's an interesting uh, point because uh, one, of the, so, um, one of the views I've actually come to is that um, obviously I'm a scientist and uh, I have many friends with scientists and I think Scientists are really cool, creative people, you know, produce a lot of cool stuff. But I also come to the view that I don't think that important decisions about whether you should make something should just be left to scientists. Um, oh because I mean if you just take the Manhattan Project as an example, you, you sort of alluded to that, we've talked about Einstein a little bit. Um, you know, Richard Feynman talked about how after the project ended, he realized that he enjoyed it too much. And you start thinking about the world differently. And, and uh, you know, I've been in that exact position where I was in a in a, in a job um, and you, you're head down doing the calculations and you're enjoying it, but you stop to think whether you should do it, um, you know, whether that's the right direction. So when, when we open up these new avenues of science investigation, um, there's a possibility of uncovering things which have the potential to do Enormous good to society or enormous ill to
1: society this is this is dealt with really really well by um uh funnily enough a, a scientific philosopher called Nick Bostrom do you know Nick Bostrom yeah, yeah he yeah. he he does he's recently um been talking about a thing called the urn of invention, which is basically a a bag full of um uh white gray and black balls and you stick your hand in and you pull out a white ball, and, hey, it's an invention that's really good for everyone, like penicillin. You pull, pull out a grey ball, and it's like, oh, it's a really good invention, like general relativity. It gives us lots of energy, but it also gives us a nuclear bomb. Oh, that's a bit, you know, it's a, it's a little bit, there's a bad side and there's a, a, an upside. There could be one that you pull out, and it's a black ball, and it's an invention that, say, uh, his, his analogy is that you pick up some sand and you can stick it in a microwave, and uh, you can blow up a city with it. And you know this, this invention now is, is so bad and so, and so terrible that you've ruined the future. That the, the moment that you have uh, a city-destroying technology that's really cheap that anyone can make, it's like, now you're in really serious trouble. And he looks at how you kind of prevent these things from happening, and looks at what you do if someone does pull out the black ball of invention. And it's a really, really fascinating paper. I mean, it it, it, it basically, yeah. I think, ends up with the conclusion that you're never going to stop scientists looking into, into stuff, and you, and you can never tell who's going to come up with, who's going to put their hand in and pull out a black ball of invention. Uh, but if it does happen, then we'll almost certainly have to have what he calls a turnkey uh, dictatorship. where it's like everything's on lockdown from that point on yeah so this is what I was alluded to earlier about
2: um, I'm not sure we're mature enough yet to get out there because I think all those issues like our ethics and morality our governance structures we haven't quite figured out yet Um, because you you certainly don't want to get to a system where um, you know everyone's basically living under a a dictatorship Um, but also I mean I'm I'm a huge believer in in personal liberty Um, but there needs to be some, some restraints I feel on what people can do if they have the, you know, there's the information, the knowledge to do something and then there's the technology or the tools to do it. Right. So, I mean, you know, talk about Manhattan project again, one of the concerns they had when they were developing, um, the bomb, um, in particular the, uh, the hydrogen bomb is that they were worried that, uh, they could set fire to the atmosphere. Right. So, um, that was considered a very low concern, but they, they ran the calculations theoretically and they concluded that it was, they didn't think that was going to happen. And so they went ahead and built it anyway, right? It's because I think the risk is very low. So how much of the world was involved in that decision? So you know, what was that calculation? What was the probability? Was it a one in a million? Was it one in a billion? I you know, can't remember the calculation, but um, who was involved in that decision? Same with CERN. You know, you know, when they were building CERN, um, there was because at the time, you know, and there's still some belief that there are more than three spatial dimensions, and uh, um, it was believed that um, if you look at the calculations, if there's more than three spatial dimensions, the Schwarzschild radius for gravitational collapse of two two protons colliding at seven tera volt energy, it changes because the Planck length changes, and so actually um, it, it was possible in principle if there were more than three spatial dimensions. Um, for those um, two protons colliding in the particle accelerator at CERN to collide into their own Schwarzschild radius. Now, the, the problem is that people misunderstand black hole physics, of course, but because due to Hawking radiation, the radiation is bursting proportional of mass, so they will radiate instantaneously, like a fraction of a second, and you just get a shower of particles coming out. But, you know, one, there were some guys um, writing papers on this, and I think there was even a law case trying to stop CERN from switching on, but it's like, you know, until we've done more work on it. It's like, well, you know, what is the risk that you're going to create a black hole and destroy the, the Earth's going to disappear inside of it? There's two two arguments to that. One is that, um, well, they just don't understand black hole physics because these are microscopic black holes which decay in a fraction of a second according to Hawking radiation. However, that hasn't been experimentally verified. No one's actually experimentally verified that a black hole that's microscopic will radiate inversely proportional to its mass. And the, the verification for that, even with macroscopic black holes, is very you know, tenuous. So um, so there's that, there's that element. And then there's the other element, which is, uh, you know, um, who makes these decisions to take these risks in society? I'm not trying to suggest for a moment that I think scientific um, experiments should be stopped. Um, but what I am saying is that um, when you are dealing with the frontiers of science and knowledge, whatever it is, um, you have to take care, right? And, and that includes even going out into the universe. We don't know what's out there, um, we don't know what's waiting for us out there um, all these discussions about METI transmitting signals out into the universe you know our radio mm-hmm. signals have been transmitted for the last century um, so for principle they're at a hundred light years already but um, we don't know there might be some bad civilizations out there who you know we've got lots of horror films uh, the Aliens is a classic one which is a brilliant film um, describing their sort of scenarios, Prometheus, where they decide to bring the, the pods to Earth to destroy humankind. Um, we don't know what's out there. Um, and uh, therefore, we even in space, I think we should tread carefully. Um, and, I, and I feel that that discussion needs to be broader than just uh, just the scientists. And, and I, I don't know if you ever saw the original Contact film based on the novel by Carl Sagan. Yeah, yeah um starring um I forget her name, Jodie Foster. Jodie yep. Foster, a brilliant actress. Um, and uh, you know, they had this big debate in the Science Committee and I think it was in Congress, where there's religious people asking her, Well, do you believe in God? And, and so they have this big debate and you know, should we switched this machine on? And um and uh, in the end they switched the machine on. You know, of course I don't believe her. She made the journey, but uh, um yeah you know, my, my only point is that um my my own feeling is that there needs to be broader discussion than just the physicists because physicists are very smart people um, and they're very creative and they, but once you get, like, you know, let's say it was true that, uh, um, you know, a bunch of physicists can prove that star was conscious. What's the implications of that? I'm not sure I've even thought that through. Yeah. I'm just, it's fun to do the calculations and I believe it's a very low probability that they are conscious but it's fun to do. But what's the implications of that being true? Uh, You know, um, same as uh, when we talk about you know, I, I've been watching a beautiful documentary on the, uh, trying to find uh, um, an abominable uh, not abominable snowman, a yeti in um, in, uh, in north, northwestern forests of uh, North America, you know, really interesting, a bunch of scientists trying to find the evidence of this thing, and evidence doesn't look strong but, you know, what if you did find this thing, what if you did find that it's actually some um, offshoot hominid, that goes back thousands of years and um you know back at the time it would be neanderthals maybe it's austroepithecus or something you know um what's the implications of that well we're going to put it in a zoo that's what we're going to do if we found ones maybe we, maybe we shouldn't you know find it i don't know yeah um so, so scientists are curious and they want to know they just want they just want to know things and uh i, I think sometimes it's not always wise to know
1: <laughs> yeah oh we're gonna to have to wrap it up there kelvin thanks very much and stay safe Okay. Okay. The interplanetary podcast is alive. Lovely. Apologies for the sound quality. Like I said, it was going to go around his house, but we ended up having to be a phone, a phone one uh, because of COVID. Thanks, COVID. Thanks, COVID. Th- thanks again. We we could mention the the other story I wrote up, which was um, a paper called "Discovering New Strong Gravitational Lenses in the DESI Legacy Imaging Survey."
0: That sounds like a quick one. <laughs> it's a very
1: quick one. Now I, I will stick this in the notes, but essentially what this is is this team this team have they've used machine learning known as deep residual neural net to train a computer to look for gravitational lensing events in this enormous data set that comes from the Tolo the Cerro Tolo into American Observatory and Kitt Peak National Observatory, this huge, huge data set. And they've found one thousand one hundred odd new um gravitational lensing events, um, mm. which is more than all astronomy has ever found ever before.
0: wow that's a that's pretty amazing.
1: So yeah this it, it so they they've managed to find all these gravitational lensing events and what makes them special again is these types of knowing that you've got these gravitational lenses out in the out in the universe it's really useful because now we've mapped where all these gravitationally lensing gra- um galaxies are we can keep an eye on them because certain events that would get lensed by these uh, enormous um, um, galaxies that are bending light from behind them, uh, now we know that they're there, we can look for things that might be really useful for us to be able to understand um, uh how the how the universe is put together. For example, if a supernova happens behind the galaxy and is lensed by the foreground, yeah. there's loads you can learn from that about about uh, general relativity. You can test general relativity even further, and so yes, it's a, it's a very very powerful tool for astrophysics. Fantastic, and, uh, yeah, and and you can study dark matter and how it's distributed in the galaxies and and all these galaxy clusters and things. So it's now, oh, basically it's just massively increased this map to look at the universe in a new and interesting way. Well done, Huang. So it's Zhang Shuanghang at the University of San Francisco, and they use the National Energy Research Scientific Computer Centre, or NERSC,
0: Supercomputer.
1: Ah, I love a good acronym. Berkeley Lab. There we go. So well done. That is a great little great little story, that one. Super. Um Chris, what are you doing this week?
0: Staying at home, Matthew. Staying at home, oh, saving oh, lives. Excellent. You know, they've yes. uh, they've they've gone into a tighter lockdown here, um, which is very understandable that the new the variant has arrived and um yeah. It's uh, it's obviously that the numbers here are not even comparable, um, but uh, they are very very strict on things. Uh, and as I said to you before we started recording, you can only buy wine and spirits in one place in in, in Norway. It is called the V monopoly, which is the wine monopoly. It's just controlled by the government, and they've, they they closed them without any notice. <laughs> so, uh, so, but that's a good thing because I'll stay at home and be sober, which is a a, a, a goal.
1: So you basically landed on the income tax square just as you passed go and didn't get your two hundred quid.
0: <laughs> pretty much, pretty much, yeah. So that was I'm going to be <laughs> a
1: wine monopoly move.
0: <laughs> yeah, wine monopoly move. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I'm going to stay at home. do a Bit of work. Spend some time with my my dear wife, who's also going to be working from home. And uh, yeah, just uh, look forward to hearing this on the uh, when it comes out. Of course, I always enjoy hearing. I like hearing your voice, maybe not mine as much. Ah, oh, it's beautiful. That do you know what I do? I do like listening to podcasts.
1: I think podcasts are really, really good in lockdowns. It's quite nice to hear other people's voices and just sort it's of been be incredible. Sat there in in a conversation. I th- I yeah. genuinely think podcasts have been really, really good in yeah in, yeah, in, in lockdown.
0: I've, so many that I've I've just absolutely loving. But I, I will recommend um, uh, Daniel and Jorge explain the universe. It's a uh, it's it's great. Um, so I listen to that a fair amount. Um, one of them's a, oh, nice. one of them's a, a comic book writer and a, a, a cartoonist. Um, but also, you know, a sort of, um, excited about physics and the other one is a particle physicist. So they, they basically just pick a subject every week and, and go at it. It's, it's really enjoyable.
1: Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah. I'd, do I have a recommendation of a podcast? Nah, you can find <laughs> it. Oh, a recovering queen. That's the best one.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah,
0: amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, what are you up to, Matthew? It. What are you going? What are you going uh, to be doing? Uh, uh, it's
1: it's it's the first week back of of lecturing at my place, so I really have got a an absolute nightmare week of work. I, I have. I've got six modules. I'm teaching for some reason. So oh. it's full on. Yeah, it's full yeah. on for the next five weeks. Good luck, so, mate. Uh, yeah. Ouch <laughs> is the word. But uh, <laughs> yeah, hopefully you know I, it, it won't affect my my podcasting.
0: Get out, breathe in the air, enjoy the sky, ride your bike. Go for a walk. Oh, oh, there was snow on the hills today. That Lovely. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we need to do. Just get out there and just just breathe in. And as Bob said on the Discord, you know, one hour of of uh, of of exercise that sort of at least gets your, your breath going and maybe gets a sweat on and try and do that as, as much as you can.
1: Oh, shout out to Bob. He's at the top. His jurisdiction where he's handing out vaccines is the top, is yeah. the top performing area. And that is a lot of it's down to Bob, apparently. So uh, uh, in terms of he's got he's gone out there and done lots and lots and lots and lots of vaccinations. So well done, Bob. You are an amazing. absolute legend. like Super Bob. Truly a legend. I mean, that that like being top of the league table in Britain currently for vaccinations means you're probably top in the world, right?
0: <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely so,
1: amazing. That is well done. What an absolute legend. Absolute. That's it. Bye.
0: Okay. bye, bye, Buy Cuts, buy Cuts, buy Cuts, buy Cuts. More fun in space. <laughs>